The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Following a near-death experience that prompted a personal awakening to the underlying interdimensional nature of reality, tonight's guest discusses insights into the realm of the paranormal. Ghosts, cryptids, flying saucers, and ufonauts. We'll analyze UFO lore and its societal impact, along with the symbiotic relationship between science and science fiction. We will examine the mission of the flying saucers regarding the impending technological singularity the advent of sentient artificial intelligence and transhumanism, all predicted by futurists to occur sometime between 2045 and 2080, will give you food for thought regarding Earth's UFO mystery and the ultimate cosmic destiny of humankind. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button. Join me on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Russell Brinegar. Russ was born in 1955 and spent his childhood in Tattersville, Florida, on the Space Coast. He was fortunate enough to watch all the Apollo launches to the moon from a distance of about five miles across the Indian River. At the age of 17, he joined the Army for two years and later earned a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy and has exercised that profession ever since. For the first 54 years of his life, he was a material reductionist, a hard science guy who believed that consciousness was an epiphenomenon of the brain and that when the brain dies, every part of a person dies with it an eternity of unconsciousness. However, on August 18, 2009, while mowing his grass, he had a heart attack along with a near-death experience that revealed the underlying multidimensional nature of reality. Since that event, Russ has diligently pursued research into the so-called paranormal in an attempt to understand exactly what happened to him that day and over the years came to some rather shocking conclusions that are elaborated in his book, Overlords of the Singularity, The Manipulation of Humankind by Hidden UFO Intelligences and the Quest. Russell Brinegar joins us from Newcastle, Indiana. Hello, Russell. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm very good. Good to be here. My pleasure. And Russ, I was telling you offline, you said you were sending me a book, but I expected something smaller. And this is a compliment to you because... What did you not include in this book, which is filled with cases and a lot of great stuff? Well, it has uh, a recap on my near-death experience, which I'll explain to your listeners. And um, following the near-death experience, which revealed the underlying interdimensional nature of reality to me personally, um, I jumped into all everything paranormal and it wound up uh, in the book, Overlords of the Singularity. And it was a 745-page Word document. I didn't really know how to go about printing or anything, but I wound up doing it through CreateSpace. It turned out 545 pages. And, yeah, if if I had to do it over again, I'd probably break it down into several smaller volumes. But um, it's my opus, and I'm proud of it. And 
Um, I've had pretty good feedback from it for the people who have taken the time to read it. It really, uh, the way it's written, it's the only UFO book a person who's unfamiliar with the field really needs to read because it's got all the classic cases in there, um, what prompted me into this type of research, and some conclusions that I came to. Sometimes, uh, having gone 54 years of um, being one of these folks that kind of poo-pooed UFOs and um cryptids and various types of paranormal activity, um, I can understand that viewpoint. And uh, it, it will just sort of like guide somebody from the material reductionist standpoint into being open to all kinds of things. You said something very interesting there. You poo-pooed all this before. Isn't it interesting? A lot of people that I interview go through some kind of life-changing event where their life and their psyche changes, and they embrace to become more open-minded to different topics. Is this what happened to you? Let's get into your story before the accident, the near-death experience. Just give it a little bit of your background, and then we'll jump into the NDE. Okay. Well, I grew up in Titusville, Florida on the Space Coast, and I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, we didn't have no iPhones or nothing like that, so my big thing at the age of about eight was to collect bubblegum cards. I uh, We traded bubblegum cards like crazy out in the woods in a fort that we built, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be of age when we could just go right down to the Indian River and watch the Apollo moon rockets go off. So I watched it on television when they took the first steps on the moon, and I watched all of the rockets go off. And that was a big deal. It was fun because there'd be a million people down there by the Indian River, and they were selling hot dogs. And when, when the thing lit up, you didn't think it was going to go off the ground because uh, – the ground shook. It took about, you know, five or 10 seconds for the ground to start shake, but it was just like thunder. I mean, it was awesome. I feel very fortunate that I was able to see those rockets go off. And then um, when I was 17, I uh, sort of wanted to leave home and do my own thing. I went, I wanted to be an astronaut and I took all the Air Force training for it and passed with flying colors, but they selected me as an alternate because they thought my eyes would go bad. And I'm sitting here with trifocals on, so they were right. But sort of discouraged by being selected as an alternate, I did something that for me was probably the worst thing I could have done. I, I joined the 101st Airborne Infantry as a gunner on an 81-millimeter mortar crew, and just about everything in my little 18-year-old psyche uh, rebelled against all that. And um, I got out after two years on a Chapter 5 expeditious discharge, uh, inability to adjust to military service, and basically just walked the earth for a couple of years. I, I ran into the Krishna people. I almost joined the Hare Krishnas, as a matter of fact, but I ran into the Rainbow family. It was people who lived on the road to uh, meet in a state forest every year. And then I got to the point where uh, I was traveling around. If you're really young like that, you're a young nomad, but I, I, I feared becoming an old bum. <laughs> <laughs> so I hitchhiked back to uh, Indiana because when I joined the Army, my family moved back to Bloomington, Indiana. That's where they were from. And not having a college education, you have a, a choice between minimum wage or selling things. So I bought the whole shtick. I went into sales. I, I've sold about everything from insurance to cars, and I was really good at it. But I got married, married the trophy wife, you know, the whole deal. He who dies with the most toys wins the, the whole mindset. And then uh, when uh, she uh, left me and I got divorced, that kind of crashed. So I went back to Florida and lived on the beach for a couple of years and just kind of <clears> – <throat> 
reached a point where I really, you know, had to do something drastic. So at the age of 37, I went back to uh, IUPUI and Indiana University. I took two years at Indiana University and then two years at IUPUI and worked four and a half years to earn a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy. And I finally found my niche. Uh, I guess the helping professions is where I should have gone to begin with because uh, as a salesman, I was really uncomfortable with the fact that you had to kind of fib to people. You know, in the in the car dealership I worked for, I don't want to mention the name of it, but uh, you tell your first little fib and you make a sale and it's kind of an adrenaline rush. And then it, it's a subculture uh, of people who see how big a lie they can tell to sell a car, you know. And I just didn't want to interact with humanity like that. You know, I, I just um, like the cartoons where somebody turns into a cooked turkey or something. You know, you're always looking to get somebody's signature on a contract. So I finally... Uh, at the age of 37, uh, figured out, you know, what I wanted to do with myself. And I, I've been an occupational therapist. Now, a lot of people think that that's somebody that gets people's jobs. So that's not what it is. Uh, in, I've, been, I've been working in a long-term care setting for 21 years now. And my goal when I graduated at the age of 42 uh, was to work 20 years and retire. And that's what I did. Last year, I turned uh, 62 in September. But um, I have worked with the elderly in nursing homes for 21 years. Uh, uh, we do a lot of rehab to home. And the job of an occupational therapist is to take somebody that's lost their independence somehow. Maybe they fell down and broke a hip, uh, had a car accident, motorcycle accident, traumatic brain injury. They, they're getting older and they've got dementia, but they've lost their independence. So when they come to us in the therapy department in the nursing home where I work here in Newcastle, um, <clears throat> we have to do an evaluation and we analyze the things in dressing, grooming, bathing, toileting, feeding, and mobility. Maybe they need a wheelchair, maybe they need a walker, but our job is to create their, uh, recreate their independence with all of those areas of their activities of daily living and their mobility. So hopefully they can go back home and live an independent life. But, um, sometimes that doesn't work out and they become permanent residents in the facility and then our job then becomes sort of maintenance. You know, every so often we'll pick them up and kind of do an evaluation and uh, figure out how we can maintain their original state of independence. But I became a uh, rehab manager and uh, life was uh, going pretty good. And uh, on August the 18th of 2009, um, I went home to mow the grass and that's where my whole uh, life changed. But just to give a little bit of idea of what a material reductionist is, I was always, for 54 years, uh, if you can't measure it or reproduce it in a laboratory, I don't even want to talk about it. You know, it's beyond the scope of what you can accept as real and what you can accept into your reality. Uh, your consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain. When your brain dies, you die. Um, Agnostic. I was always kind of curious if there was just an eternity of unconsciousness or, or, or what would happen, you know, when, when you died. Maybe I'll you know, be pleasantly surprised. But so I guess I considered myself an agnostic. But um, as far as the UFOs or anything like that, you know, I was typical. I was a big fan of Carl Sagan. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And um, they, you can't get here from there. And uh, the people who have abduction experiences are probably fantasy-prone individuals that are experiencing, you know, some type of delusionary process. But I didn't really pay much attention to it because it was just in the category of unicorns to me. 
But when I went home, uh, I fired up the uh, lawnmower and took about 15 steps. And I was overcome with a really bad sense of fatigue. And it was a hot August day and I, I, the sun was out. And I thought that I was um, experiencing some type of dehydration. So I went inside in my house and turned the air conditioner on and flip-flopped on the bed. And I felt slightly nauseous. And I, I began feeling a little bit better after a while. So like a dummy, I went out to do it again. <laughs> and I uh, pulled the cord and got it started. And I took another 15 steps or so. And the same sense of fatigue came over me only about 10 times worse. And I realized it hit me like a rock what was happening. I was having a heart attack and it was a bad one. I, I mean, I was a goner. So like a dog uh, looking for a place to do his business, I, I didn't want to hit my head on the gravel. So I uh, kind of went around around circles trying to find a soft place in the grass so that I could lay down and die. Rush, loosen you, the lawnmower, and then you were looking for a place to fall. And I hate to say right. the word. <laughs> I was looking for a place to die. So uh, what happened was uh, as I was looking for a place to lay down and, and pass, uh, something really bizarre happened. It was almost like somebody just kind of tweaked my reality a little bit because all of a sudden I didn't hear any sounds. Uh, the sounds of the birds uh, uh, died. Uh, the uh, sound of the automobiles going across. It was just complete silence. And so for some reason, I was compelled to look in the direction of the sun. And I was just standing there expecting, you know, to cross at any minute. And then all of a sudden, um, I wasn't alone now. Uh, people started showing up. And I didn't see them with my physical eyes. It was almost like uh, like a little shutter, like you see on the Predator movie, you know, where he moves and you can see a little shimmer. Yeah. But inside my mind, I, I would... I would someday learn that this was a moment of clairsentience, but I didn't people, people in the physical world or people in the other world? Well, that's the really strange thing, because you would expect that if people showed up in ethereal form, that they would all be people that I knew that may be deceased. But the people that were showing up first that I positively identified inside my mind, I mean, their presence was completely known to me. We're still living here on planet Earth. And the strangest part of all was that a transcended version of myself showed up. It was almost like everything good in me, uh, kindness, benevolence, uh, charity, was extracted out of me and projected in some kind of alien, or not alien, angelic form in front of me. So it was almost as if I Googled the universe, Russ is dying. And associated links started popping up. And the people that were closest were people that I recognized that were still living on planet Earth. And then there was me. And then there, there was people like uh, just kind of like in layers, you know, coming up behind them. And I felt strangely familiar with these people, but I couldn't positively identify them. And very quickly, I got like a mental download that I had a choice to make and I had to make it really quick. They said to me, including the version of myself that we're here for you. You're welcome to cross the veil and come over to this side. We will welcome you. But are you sure you want to do it right now? Because life on earth is very 
fragile and very precious, and you might want to reconsider that. And I thought about it for just a second, and the thought crossed my mind that how cool would it be to keep living here on planet Earth knowing that this is going to happen when I pass? You know, that life does go on after death, and that there are uh, associated entities that you associate with, plus there's like this uncoupled from our normal space-time matrix version of yourself that has a lot more knowledge of what's actually going on in the universe than I do here. And I thought about it, and I just decided really quick that I was going to go ahead and live. So I was totally confident once I made the decision that I was going to live. So I went into the house, I got the keys to my car, and I drove myself to the hospital. And I could tell that, you know, something bad going wrong. You know, I was definitely having a heart attack. And I pulled up to the emergency room in the hospital and parked the car and I got my keys and I held them out in front of me as I walked to the information desk. And this guy behind the desk, his eyes got really big and he came around and I said, I'm having a heart attack. Would you park my car and bring me my keys wherever they take me? There was no 911 back then or no cell phones, actually. Well, I had a cell phone, but I just, uh, I just, I just drove myself to the hospital and checked myself in. But they, <laughs> well. they, they, they put me in a wheelchair and took me to a room, and they started an IV, and I hear morphine, and uh, the doctor says you, you're definitely having a heart attack, and we've got to get you up to Ball Hospital, which is about a 40 minute drive. And the only thing I could think of was, wow, I always wanted to ride in an ambulance with the sirens going. You know, this is going to be cool. So they put me on a stretcher. The guy brought my keys back, but they they put me on a stretcher. I went back out into the sun. And as I'm going to the ambulance in the sun, I just I'm remembering my friends that I encountered, my, my loved ones and my friends. And the thing is. What weighed heavily, the most heavily on my mind as I was trying to make a decision whether to walk through the veil or to stay behind here is relationships that people I was close to where things weren't quite right. Uh, there was a woman that I had broken up with about a year previously because I was, it was out of fear. I did not want to get married again, and she did. So I broke up with her. and. She was definitely on my mind, and I had an estranged daughter that was on my mind. And these relationships were on my mind like the whole time I went up to the hospital. But it was funny because there was a uh, an EMT, two EMTs. Uh, one guy was in his 50s, and there was another gal. And uh, <clears throat> I felt sorry for them because they kept looking at my monitor like they were going to lose me. And so I told them a joke about a bee that stung me at camp the last weekend. And I remember the guy said under his breath, He'll think beasting when he gets to that cath lab. And I didn't know what he meant, but I was going to find out because when they pulled me up to Ball Hospital, the doctors were all there, uh, scrubbed up, gloved, ready to go. And they said, there's two routes we can go. We can, we, we can, you've got a couple of occlusions. We've got, we can do a quadruple bypass or we can try putting a couple of stents in the uh, arteries in the back of your heart. And I said, well, I don't know the real implications of either one of those. Can you give me a rundown? So they did. And when they described the bypass to me, I said, I'll take the stents. <laughs> so I got to lay there and watch uh, the, the doctor. He's like right in front of me with the little goggles on and there's a TV monitor over to my right. Chris, they give you some good stuff where, where you know it hurts. When they jammed the uh, needle into my femoral artery, then I realized what the EMT said, you know, about it, about the bee sting, because 
I don't know what they gave me, some type of hypnotic drug, but it's like, oh, if, if I cared, that would really hurt. But I watched them. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section, or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today, with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it, because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.